open up with a quick word of prayer and we'll dive straight in. Lord, thank you so much for today, for bringing us here safely. Lord, thank you for the, the blessing it is to get together with fellow believers. Um, God, to be encouraged. God, to encourage others. We thank you. Um, as we look at church history, Lord, would you give us give us a, a solid perspective of, of how you have uh, kept your church, you've kept believers believing throughout the years. Um, Lord, thank you for giving us faith and giving us so much grace over so much time. In your name we pray, amen. So as we dive in today, um, this is our, our 11th chapter in this book, and it's, it's a huge chapter. Um, instead of covering every single point of every single date of every single person, um, I've taken the alternate approach. We are going to kind of combine a lot of things, make some, some generalizations. We're going to look at um, large periods of time and what occurred during those periods of time. We are going to spend most of our time at the beginning on the fall of Rome. Um, so if you do have your book with you, that's where we'll be in chapter 11. Um, really quickly, and, and or maybe not so quickly, we're going to tap into last week's stuff. So from last week, I think... It stood out to me that we were talking about who Jesus was. Who is Jesus? We were trying to answer that question. Um, because in chapter 10, we were presented with a bunch of people who didn't know the answer, or were trying to discover the answer, or were trying to define the answer, or refine the answer. So uh, without me telling you, what, what, do you, what do you think? What did we come away with last week? Where were some of the things that people had learned or or the Orthodox Christian Church had come together and said, this is who Jesus is, or this is who Jesus is not. What were some of the things we, we kind of covered? Yeah. I know we don't have the mic, so just yell it out. Oh, there you go. You, nice. A mic runner. Yeah. A couple of things stood out from last week. Who is Jesus? I'll stand here awkwardly until we, we get a couple people just to, it, and it, you don't have to be right, but. Um, right. Let's use the mic one more time. Yep. Hand it over, bud. Nice work. There you go. Just summarize that again. Yeah. Right. Jesus was not just a prophet, not just a good person. He was not just a man. Not just a man. Yep. He was a son of man. He liked to be called that more than anything else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He was God in man. He was our Savior. Mm -hmm. So he was a lot of things, and he was not a lot of things. Um, and so who Jesus is was kind of the point of last week entirely. And we had the nature versus person debate, right? Aaron's going to tack on to that. You could also phrase the question, what is Jesus? Ah. Who is Jesus? What is Jesus? And the answer we really came away with, the conclusion was that Jesus is 
There's one person with two natures. And we have two fun words for that um, that I, I continue to confuse, but um, I will continue to work on that. We had physis and hypostasis. Okay. Um, so the conclusions that the Orthodox Christian Church basically came up with was Jesus is not two separate persons. This is not two separate uh, uh, individuals. We struggled to define person 100%, but um, they're not separate entities, if you will. Um, he has a divine nature and a human nature, which make up who he is. And Jesus is both God and man. So... Um, we won't spend a ton of time on this. We'll dive straight in. So our first section is about 378 to 493 A.D. I just termed this a time of trouble. We could term a lot of times that. But um, this one specifically had a lot of implications. It changed the face of Christianity entirely. Um, during this time, there were a bunch of problems through the whole Roman Empire. And we think of Rome, if, you, if you're a, a history buff or not, you probably remember that Rome was one of the greatest empires of all time. And so uh, we had these Germanic tribes that started moving into the, the Roman territory. And that was mostly fine. Um, we had quite a few who were being chased out of their territory um, just a few years before this time frame. But once they lived there... What happened? Well, we, we know that a whole bunch of people living on one area of land, uh, there's generally competition, and in this case, it's, it's war. It turned into war. So this led to a bunch of wars. We had, we had multiple between the Romans and the Germanic tribes, and this was all about territory, all about land, all about cities, towns, possession of, of space, of area. And so... Um, when we are looking at this time frame in history, that starts what we know as the fall of Rome, where Rome starts to, to really get into decline. But by this time, I'll show you a graph. When I say Rome, I'm referring often to the Western Roman Empire. Rome was kind of two empires by that point. Um, and during this time frame, a whole bunch of Christians from a whole bunch of backgrounds were experiencing different types of persecution from different sources. It was just constant. Again, I'm, my goal today is not to hit every name and every place and every event and every persecution. My goal today is give you the overview of that time, right? Big chapter. So we have guys like Augustine, who we've talked about, or Augustine, depending on where you want to go on that debate. Um, and he died in 430 AD during this time frame when a Germanic army was attacking his city. Hippo, right? Augustine of Hippo, Augustine of Hippo. Um, also, other areas were impacted. So the leaders, right, the bishops, pastors of the African Christians, they became slaves of, of the Germanic tribes. They were actually deported to start cutting down wood. Um, this was pretty typical, right? You, invading country, takes slaves, makes them go do the things that they need the manpower to do. Um, but this involved, like, the church leaders themselves. So what I've put up here is a graph that is too small for you to read. So I'm going to put up a bigger one, probably still too big for, too small for you to read. But this is going to look at kind of the time frame leading up to where we are and the time frame going to where uh, about 4, 
78, right around where I said. So here's the bigger picture. And again, lots of names and dates. What you need to know is pretty simple. On this graph, we have about 50 years of military generals. And right here, we divide the empire. So Western and Eastern empires. Um, a lot of what we think of as the Western empire actually had the city of Rome in it. So that's why when we say the Roman Empire, often after the split, it's referring to the Western Roman Empire. The Eastern one took on different name, especially after Rome actually fell. Um, anyone, rem anyone read the chapter? Anyone know the name of that one? Right. So Byzantium, um, Byzantine Empire would be the, the name eventually for the Eastern Roman Empire. And so on here, we have names that you've seen before, many, many, many names that we've talked about. Uh, Constantius, um, Theodosius, uh, there is Constantine in there somewhere. And then I, I love this, random impotent emperors for about 50 years. Love this chart. And finally, we, we kind of reached the end around 476 is when we could officially say the Western Roman Empire or what we think of as the Roman Empire, Kaputskied. It was done. The end. So what happened in 410 that makes me put up an entire slide about one year when we're looking at hundreds? Well, this is the official beginning, if you will, or the official end, depending on how you view history. This is when Rome fell, the city. And again, the city was... Let's put it this way. The entire empire was named after that one city. It was a big city. It was a great city. It was a city of importance. So when that falls, some would say that the entire Roman Empire crumbled. Right? So because the city of Rome represented the entire Western Roman Empire, that was my point, is that when that city falls, the whole Western Roman Empire is, is basically going to dissolve over time. Now we start referring to the Eastern Roman Empire as the Byzantine Empire, named after the city Byzantium. Yeah, good call, Justin, earlier. And so who, uh, who attacked Rome? Well, the attackers were the Visigoths, one of the Germanic tribes, kind of fun, um, Visigoths. And these guys had some specifics about them, but there were a whole bunch of tribes. If you want to look in the book on probably the first or second page of this chapter, it lists um, 10, 11 tribes something like that. And so the Visigoths had mostly converted to something called Arianism. Really quickly, again, um, does anyone remember what that one was? What was that heresy? What was that issue? Um, they, I think we've, we looked pretty deeply at a couple weeks back. Um, just toss a hand in the air if you can remember it. I keep stepping on things. There, there was a time when the sun was not. Mm. Yeah, implication being, Jesus was created. Okay, thanks, heresy. Um, this heresy brought to you by Arianism. So it was basically a false religion that believed that Jesus was a created being. I messed up, I'm sorry. And not God. This is similar to, if we want to look at the contemporary comparison, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. In many respects, any religion that believes that Jesus is a created being had its foundation somehow 
traced back to here. Um, the rest of the Germanic tribes were still pagans. Again, by pagan, we toss out the term a lot in churchy circles. But what do we, what's a pagan? What's a pagan? If I say it, most of the tribes were pagans. Uh, usually they are polytheistic in nature. Right. Usually they believed in multiple gods. Absolutely. Um, some would say that uh, a lot of the dictionary definitions today encompass anything that was a worldly god. It wasn't the, the one true god. Anything that wasn't uh, the Christian god. Anything that wasn't the orthodox Christian god. There were specific and non-specific definitions. It's a pretty rough word to use. But what we mean mostly is multiple gods. So um, anyone who's a non-Christian has often been referred to as a pagan in certain circles. However, we still know some of these gods a little bit. Uh, a lot of the names of our weekdays come from these Germanic gods. I, that's actually one of my favorite little interesting weird points in this whole chapter. Um, see if we can find that one. They list all the tribes that had the different systems on that first page of the uh, chapter. On the second page of the chapter, at uh, 320, if you have the book, it says things like Tuesday comes somehow from Tiwa's day. Forgive my failure of pronunciation, but this is where we get a lot of our names. Uh, Wednesday from Woden's day. Thursday from Thor's day. Friday from Freya's day. Saturday from Satyr's day. We get most of our names. These still have a huge impact on us today. The connections don't stop just because it stopped existing. And so Rome, the city, fell in 410, but until 476, it continued falling. The empire, right? The Western empire became more like, like a puppet state, if you will. Um, and so we get a lot of Christians who we've already looked at um, really coming into a time of despair. This, is, this was not a happy time in church history. This was a time that, that was really rough. And so Jerome writes, My voice is choked, broken with sobs as I dictate this letter. The city that conquered the entire earth has now itself been conquered. Um, and so the viewpoint was that uh, of the Christians then was Rome fell, we're done for. You see that throughout this because the pagans are coming in, um, the Aryans are coming back, they're making a, a rerun, right? There's a sequel, Arianism 2.0, 3.0, 18.0. It just keeps happening. By 476, by the end of this time frame, the last parts of the actual Western Roman Empire had, had vanished. Um, but... Many of the Germanic tribes who actually overthrew the, the government continued to think of themselves as citizens of the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire. So you get these Germanic tribes calling themselves Romans, calling themselves um, the Roman Empire, calling themselves. In fact, one t at one point, there was an entire Roman ar army made up of Germanic tribe members. It wasn't a Roman army at that point, not in the way we think of it. Um, 
So Rome was only left in name. The empire itself was only left in name. Um, the Eastern Empire actually comes to be known as a different name. And so for the next, look at that time frame, 493 to 709, this is not a small time frame. We have constant struggle. Christians are, are not having a good time. Religious persecution became a way of life for a, a lot of these people groups. Uh, the false religions continue to spring up. We see um, Arianism, and then we actually see uh, different forms of Catholicism. Now, it's still tough for me to wrap my mind around. When we say Catholic today, we specifically mean Roman Catholic almost every time. Like 99 out of 100 times. When I say Catholic, I mean Roman Catholic. Um, the Catholic Church at that point was meaning something else. The Orthodox Church. The Christian Church in that whole area. The actual Christian Church. And so the Catholic Church starts changing some things. We see some developments that are not positive. We see some developments that are um, slow to adopt. Even as some of the, the people groups start being converted, which is a positive, and we'll look at it in a bit, they don't fully convert. Or... They worship God and gods. Or they confuse what's actually being a Christian versus what's Arianism. It takes a long time for them to actually convert. So as the tribes are conquering, you see kind of messed up forms of Christianity all over. Do you see messed up forms of Christianity all over today? Yes. Yes. It's not like we suddenly have it all perfect. Even by studying history. So my favorite broad generalization of this time frame is that a king would persecute one specific religious group, then an emperor would persecute a different religious group, and then it would go back and forth. And the king would change and his people group he persecuted would change. And the emperor would change, and his people group he persecuted would change. And it just went back and forth. And it just continued. Um, name after name after name is listed. One of the ones I will bring up is, help me with this, Boethius? Boethius? We'll go with yes. Boethius. I'll say that. Boethius? <laughs> I'll go with Boethius. Um, so he's a very educated political advisor, a philosopher, a theologian, really interesting guy. Um, I, I enjoy philosophy as a, as a concept, but you'll see where just thinking without having a grounded basis leads him astray a, a little bit because he considers things on equal levels with each other. So he was sentenced to death. In fact, the book says he was sentenced to death by battering his head to a pulp with clubs. That's pretty intense. That's gross. Yuck. Um, and so he's waiting in jail, and he's struggling to find the meaning of that. He's struggling to find how God could um, let him make his own choices, let these people make their own choices without being in control of them all because he wouldn't force someone to sin and all these different things. And so he wrote this, this book called The Consolation of Philosophy. Obviously, the, the, the consolation was to his own soul. How am I going to deal with my own impending death? Right? 
And so the book became the foundation for a lot of our uh, of Western religions for the next thousand years. Uh, the philosophical discussion around God's involvement with human decisions and responsibilities. This book remains true today. Um, what I mean by that is it remains influential today. Uh, I took my medieval philosophy courses back in um, maybe 10 years ago. Really interesting stuff, but we still all have some basis of how does God see time and how does God exist outside of time and how does God interact with human responsibility and these things have a lot of basis with him where he says God is outside of time. He's not in time like we are. So he sees all of time as the present. And thus, he sees you making a decision. He knows it will happen, but he doesn't influence you to make it happen. In some regard, this is the seeing, uh, if you've heard the phrase, seeing down the corridors of time, it's kind of a, a lot of this element um, expanded upon. Not that he didn't have some good ideas too, but we get some interesting ideas now within uh, charismatic circles within um, some other uh, non-Christian sects as well um, that come from somehow that book. They get their ideas there. So the struggles weren't just in with one dude and persecution. There was still war. War kept happening between different tribes over control of different areas. And this is mostly Europe, right? This is, this is um, Europe, Africa. We've got little bits and pieces as it expands outwards. But this is hundreds of years of wars. And some of the groups actually practiced what we know today as ethnic cleansing. So they go up uh, to an area and they kill all the people who lived there and they just put themselves there, right? The native people, it's not like make them slaves and let's have them serve us. It's not, uh, sure, they can be the peacemakers, they have to pay taxes to us. It's let's go in, kill all of them and replace them ethnic cleansing, wiping out an entire people group. Um, this was, <laughs> these were not nice people. Uh, there was also a lot of political versus religious strife. So you have uh, religious leaders, political leaders, and sometimes the lines blur. They start crossing over. So the religious leaders would use their authority to influence political decisions, whether that was peace or war or whatever that was. Political leaders would try to use their authority to influence the religious decisions. Um, there was a lot of kickback from that unless it was something that the religious leader saw as positive. For example, uh, I believe it's Gregory the Great. I could be wrong. Um, Double-check myself here. Uh, Gregory the Great, who an emperor designated him like the, the head bishop of all bishops, period. The, the ruler, if you will, uh, spiritual leader of all Christians everywhere. And Gregory the Great, being actually kind of a humble guy, goes, no, uh, that seems like absurd, arrogant. Um. But the guy who follows him goes, hey, I'd like that title. That sounds awesome. So he gladly accepts that title. Big difference in how they view the political leader trying to interfere 
Uh, specifically, Gregory the Great, he was actually a humble guy. He had some, some nice things that he did, but he also established a lot of the concepts that have become traditional uh, rooted issues, deeply rooted issues within the Roman Catholic Church today, for example. He established before purgatory used to be like an opinion. You could hold it or you could not. It's valid either way. He established it. This is, purgatory exists. That was his viewpoint. And he called it a place of purifying fire midway between heaven and hell. So while you're waiting, you're going to pay off your sins there. In fact, again, if you have your book with you, the whole section here where it talks about, see if I can find that real fast. Um, his theology and his church leadership. Um, so theologians, I'll read directly from the book on page 333, fun number, had considered belief in purgatory to be an opinion rather than a definite Christian doctrine. But Gregory's influence helped to make it a definite doctrine in the West. These never accepted it. Um, based on this belief, here's where it just goes awry. Everything starts hitting hitting a, a brick wall and, and going downhill quickly. Um, because he believed in purgatory so strongly, Gregory introduced the practice of celebrating special communion services for the dead. Right? Services like that were effective, in his viewpoint, for forgiving the sins of departed souls and getting them quickly from purgatory to heaven. So he's... he's not just allowed people to hold the view of, sure, purgatory could exist. Now he's established it, and now there's communion services for the dead, and now the dead can be forgiven for some of their sins so that they can go from purgatory to heaven quicker. And what happens after that? Well, it develops. As that theology invades the entire Western culture, by Gregory's time, people in the West were calling Holy Communion the Mass. Um... And it was kind of a standard term then. He opposed... It's kind of a weird way to phrase it. He opposed veneration of images or icons. So he put a statue up here. This is my little idol of Jesus, my little idol of Mary. He didn't want you to worship the idol, adore the idol, anything. But... But... um, he approved of using them to adorn churches as teaching aids for those who couldn't read. Illiteracy is maybe less of an issue today in certain in many areas of the world, like ours, right here. It was a real issue then. So maybe it had some, some grounding, some practical grounding, but you see how that leaves the door open for some serious issues. And he gets into it later with some guys. Um, I'll read this. Either now or later, we'll figure it out. We'll read the, I'll read this section first. So on icons, on 353 in the book, he has kind of an interesting letter, right? He writes to a man who had destroyed all the icons, destroyed all the idols in a certain church, in a certain area. Um, And he writes, we've heard that in an outburst of reckless ardor, you've smashed icons of the saints, arguing 
that people should not offer them adoration. Don't adore, don't worship the idols, the icons. In fact, we praise you for commanding people not to adore them, but we blame you for smashing them. Again, his reasoning comes really just down to if people are illiterate, you're not going to be able to hand them a text or read them the text or have them come to the church to read the text or whatever it is. They have to see something, and that can tell them a story. But boy, that, that is a nasty line to try to play. So throughout all this nasty time, there is constant hope. And here's where you see God preserving his church. Here's where it's, church history is actually encouraging, not discouraging. There's all these warring factions, tribes, nations, and many of them were actually converted to true Christianity. Over time, um, groups like, ready? The Burgundians, Franks, Visigoths, Lombards, and others. They all converted at some point for some length of time to a form of true Christianity. Meaning, there were still some some major debates, there were still some major clashes, there were still some major arguments, and nonetheless, through all of human stupidity, God's still going, my church exists, my church will continue to exist. And evangelism becomes a real thing. It becomes a point of emphasis. So people groups who haven't been reached actually start getting reached. Um, it became a passion for a lot of the religious leaders. And one other thing kind of came out of this time, some famous poems and hymns. Um, I, I actually really enjoyed a couple of them. Um, but there's, there's a guy named Patrick who was called the Apostle of Ireland who wrote um, kind of a famous poem, Christ be with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ within me. Um, that one's listed at the end of the chapter, uh, well, right before the end of the chapter, called Patrick's Breastplate. And that section says, O Christ, protect me today against poison, against burning, against drowning, against wounding, so that I may receive a rich reward. Christ be with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ within me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I rest, Christ when I ride, Christ when I cross the waters, Christ in the heart of all who think of me, Christ in the mouth of all who speak to me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. Uh, there's some really powerful moments in here. Not saying every, every implication theologically is 100%. Yahoo, here we go, right on. But there's some really powerful moments. So we, we see throughout all of this nasty, constant hundred years of war, the Rome going away, which was kind of the hope, the beacon to many of the Christians of the day. Um, we see God preserving his church no matter what. No matter what. Um, there are so many issues that popped up. So many false religions. So many variations that keep rearing their ugly head. Right? And consuming tribes. And yet, through all of this, God keeps his church. I know that today I did not hit a ton of specific names. I know that I did not hit a ton of specifics. Actually, throughout the entire thing. We are talking about hundreds of years and a giant chapter. So, again, if you have the book, feel free to read through it and underline parts. I was underlining like none other on this one. Um, 
this is the book. If you don't have it, um, it's not terribly expensive. It is on Amazon. Um, I think many of us have been blessed by it. Uh, I'm not saying there aren't dry moments, many, but uh, we can find some real true encouragement in here. So, uh, Let's open the floor for questions, comments, thoughts, quandaries, concerns, calamities, conundrums, catastrophes, any other C words. Um, Confectionaries? No. Um, anything I covered or didn't cover or you want me to cover or anything that you're going to take away that's encouraging, anything that you want to poke and prod at, just toss a hand in the air as we kind of go through. Um, and again, let's get this discussion going. We've got a few minutes here. Let's use it wisely. Do we have icons or anything that we uh, visually uh, venerate in the church today? Almost every Christian church you know um, has a symbol of a cross on top of their building, inside their building, somewhere in their building. Um, There might be paintings. They vary. Um, There are so many things that are in many churches. So... Can we claim that every single painting is obviously sinful? No. Can we say that having a a symbol of a cross is inherently bad? No. Not at all. Where he struggled, where Gregory the Great struggled, was the line between adoration versus symbols of almost every human. Apostles. Um, Mary is the obvious one. Could we, is there a way we could possibly fall into venerating or worshiping or placing too much adoration in in some of these visuals? Let's toss that one to you guys, uh, not because I don't want to answer it, but because I've been blabbing forever. Is there a way that we could over-venerate or venerate to a a sinful degree or something? Um, Symbols we find in Christian churches. There's a, a mic right behind you, right there. Sure. Do you want to grab the mic real fast? It's on. It really comes, to, in my opinion, anyway, it comes down to that, what your background, what your training is. Sure. And your education and your beliefs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was watching a show last night on Peter and Paul mm-hmm. in the church. It was kind of split. And... You kind of forget that uh, some of the beautiful paintings depicted. There was one in that picture, and we've been to Europe and you know been to the, mm-hmm. the various cathedrals and you know uh, France and all of this. But you forget until you stand in Washington D.C. in front of some of this artwork, and you're not worshiping it. But it's interesting to see there was a painting. I don't remember the person's name of Peter when he was on the road to Damascus. And yeah. it was of him, of a very young man. Mm-hmm. He was uh, obviously quite old in a church. <clears throat> well done. Showing him when he was young, very strong, in his armor laying there. And then there was a horse in the picture. I was telling <laughs> Dwight about this. And the interesting thing about the picture is the horse's eye looking down at him, knowing 
what was going on. Mm. Now, that's not worshiping that picture, but that's, so like I said, I think it's into the person. I sure. Mean, any, we, we worship everything around us all the time. I mean, it's almost more dangerous to be worshiping other things in our lives than I think looking at, it's like reading books, this history book on the church. Um, so anyway. Yeah. I think we, we definitely hear your points on that. Um, maybe the one of the bigger dangers, let's hand the mic back to our friend over here. One of the bigger dangers with venerating or worshiping or providing something to worship that's a person is where we place our, our actual faith for salvation, right? Um, we do worship things. I think we, we've talked about that one before. We give praise and honor and glory to things that should not receive praise and honor and glory. Work, friends, family, time, stuff, whatever. Um, however, we typically don't believe in them for salvation, hopefully, within our circles. So, yes and? Yeah. So, in, in America, we really don't use paintings and art, you know, in, in the way that, uh, like, as, as instructive or educating tools as, as they did in the early church, but... Sure. Um, I think this is an area where you are very qualified to answer. What about music? Music, is, you know, could be used to instruct uh, and to illustrate and to teach, but could how could music be misapplied or become something it ought not become? Yeah. Um, music becomes misapplied. Mm extremely often in many churches over the years, including today's, um, simply because we like the music more than the service itself. And so we, we value it more than the preaching. We value it more than the people. We value it more than service. We value it whatever. Or we dislike the style. We dislike the song choice. We dislike the word choice. We dislike the whatever. And that sets our tone and our mood towards the church itself. Um, in other words, we worship the songs, not the point of the songs. Um, it, I'm not saying we all do that. I'm not saying we all do that often. But it does happen. But I've fallen trapped to that many, many times. Um, it can be a week-by-week -week thing, too. So, Yeah, I would say music can be misapplied for sure. We can worship wrong things. What else? Got time for another one? Something that stuck with you, encouraged you, confused you? Over there. Uh, you only briefly touched on purgatory. What, in your estimation, what what is the um, the biggest issue? with upholding the doctrine of purgatory? That's a great question. Um, I've been having some debates with um, some Seventh-day Adventists recently on uh, soul sleep. So even though that's not a, uh, it's not heaven, it's not hell, it's not purgatory, it's nothing. Right? It's just you, you don't exist for a while. You sleep, if you will. Um, it's similar in some ways. Purgatory creates this idea of, of earning, of working. At its core, 
you have to still work off your sins. You are not fully forgiven. Jesus did not fully die for you. Um, that's my main concern. I'm certain there are others. What are other main concerns with purgatory? What other things that you guys see as, as maybe issues or, or dangers if people start have that belief system? I've been doing some reading on this off and on <clears throat> for the last several months, and I came across the, the fact that C.S. Lewis, who was a Christian, mm-hmm. now he started out young in his life, and he'd moved away from the church. He was brought back to the church by uh, the Copeland, who was Catholic. But C.S. Lewis never became a Catholic. He always stayed uh, in the Church of England. He believed in purgatory. It's interesting to look at what he saw on it. He did not see it as on uh, other articles I read as it was it's a refining. Mm. You go after you die, that's it. You don't go there to be given for sins. You've already once you've died you're either in heaven or you're in hell. And these things I've been reading about it Maybe wrong, maybe not, but Augustine, they were obviously discussing this a long time ago, way before any of us were here. It was a point that should be refined so that you're totally cleansed when you get to heaven. It has mm. nothing to do with forgiveness for sin. Sure. And I, uh, um, I hear the refiner's fire. Yeah. We hear of the refiner's fire thing pretty often, if not super often um we hear of um you know the the good works staying bad works being melted away um let's see what do you think um the 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 issue i take up with that is uh the thought that i'm going to purge you know i'm going to have my my uh bits that need to be cleansed purged away by my suffering that seems to be that seems to undermine the the glorification that God will do for every believer. You know, you, you look at um, you look at Revelation twenty and twenty one, and you don't see any um, progressive uh, growth in or progressive development into glorification. You just see a resurrection, and there you have goats and sheep. You have one on this side, one on that side, mm. and it just seems to be a just a, a thing that God does right then and there, and there's no thousands of years of anguish in some middle state before you can be elevated up to up to heaven. Right. It, it, it seems to be a work that God does perfectly, efficiently, and effectively at one moment. Yeah. Um, these are really good ones, too. Do you want – we'll grab one last one, then we'll, we'll wrap up. It just seems to me that the thought of purgatory less lessens the urgency for our salvation today because it mm. makes people think, oh, I don't get it all today. I'll, I'm going to go in purgatory. I'll, I'll get cleansed and get to go to heaven anyway. Yeah. Um, so it takes away that urgency that we need to have for us to preach and you know spread the word and for those that are hearing it to accept it. Yeah. And we know that um, we've already heard that there's alternate views of what purgatory is today. And I'm certain there were alternate views of what purgatory was then um, and what it does and what it accomplishes and how it works and how long it works and who goes there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
But that might be the core of the issue, that it's such a man-made doctrine, it's made by man. Um, It's hard to find real concrete biblical examples of someone dying and going to a middle state. My opinion is they don't exist, but um, it's hard to find at the very least. We'll continue these discussions, but they'll be one-on-one. Let's wrap up this time with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you so much for preserving your church. Um, Thank you that we can learn from people, that we don't have to constantly trip over ourselves um, and make the same mistakes that have been made before. Um, Lord, thank you for even during the, the most troubled times, keeping people in the faith. Thank you for making Christians throughout throughout history and making us Christians today. We thank you and praise you. In your name we pray. Amen.